So question for you guys. How many of you guys have received an inheritance of any sort? Through a relative, through one of you? Is that it? Two of you? Few of you? Yeah, and, and uh, that's good because that's a good thing that people aren't dying and giving you things. Um, yeah, and, and I've received two things that in my life are really the closest I can get to an inheritance, kind of a quasi-inheritance. And each of them was kind of in different ways. And the most recent thing I inherited um, was my grandpa's old Bible. And this was really special to me um, when I got it because in a large part, my grandpa's one of the biggest motivations um, outside of the call of Christ uh, to be a pastor. Um, and I remember talking to my grandpa one day, uh, and he said his biggest regret in life was not becoming a pastor. He, him and grandma had moved um, way back when uh, to Seattle from uh, Missoula. They had moved over there. Actually, at that point, they would have been in Iowa, I think. Moved to Seattle. He went to a Bible school, but they couldn't afford it anymore, so they had to move back. And then he spent um, kind of the rest of his life doing tent-making stuff, all the while while leading um, the, the, the worship and choirs at the churches. Um, that he was at, and it was, it was, it was cool because it, you, you saw this, this thing in Grandpa that was just his desire um, to share Christ with people. And I remember um, when Grandpa was kind of at his weakest with cancer, um, he, he talked to me, uh, and he used to tell her, just make sure my family knows about Jesus. And for me, that was a really um, cool thing and really just kind of a unnerving thing from my grandpa who's about to die of just the weight that he sees in his family. It's not make sure they get over me. It's not make sure they're taken care of me. It's make sure they know um, about Jesus. And so his desire for Christ was hugely influential for me. And so when grandma came to me and offered me his Bible, it was, really, it was, it was a really cool um, thing. And I just cried when she gave it to me because it's old Bible and it's leather and it's all falling apart and it's the, the King James Version, but it's got... It's just written up all over with his prayers and his thoughts and his family history. And you see the birth date of all of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, and they're really just kind of a treasure for me um, and my wife. And, I, and it sits on my um, desk where I write my sermons. It's just kind of a, a reminder, um, and just kind of a cool thing that was given to me. The first thing I got, though, was a little different. My grandpa's father-in-law, grandma's dad, Grandpa Bear, is what we call him because um, he was a bear. Uh, he, he was awesome. He was one of those um, old timers who lived in Podunk, Mile City for the majority of his life, which is way back east, kind of like guns, guts, and glory uh, guy. And really just, I remember he picked up a hitchhiker once and the hitchhiker pulled the knife on him. Um, and he just aimed his card towards a tree and said, I'm ready to see Jesus, are you? And the hitchhiker jumped out. Um, because grandpa, grandpa's like, I'm old, whatever. Um, so, but just one of those old hardcore guys. And there was common knowledge in the Valine family um, of when you turned 12, Grandpa Bear would get you a Ruger 22. Um, and it was, for most of us, it was our first gun at 12 years old. We would get a 22. And there was lots of um, Valine great-grandchildren of his. And, and each person knew that when you turned 12, um, this was going to come. While Grandpa's Bible um, was unexpected, Grandpa Bear's gun was very expected. You knew that one day you were going to get this oblong box that has high-velocity firearms inside of it to shoot at whatever you want to shoot at. Um, and there was no group of people outside of Valine cousins who wanted to be 12 so bad. Like some people want to be teenagers. Some people want to be 21. Some people want to be old. We wanted to be 12. Like that was the benchmark for everything. You, you turn 12 years old, you get your gun. And my family, my dad was the youngest um, in his family. And so me and my siblings were some of the last to get him. And you watch it come down the line and it finally gets to you. And it's kind of cool at, at 96 years old when grandpa died, he got to live to see each of his, his 13 
um, great-grandchildren get their guns, and just kind of a cool thing um, in our family. And I remember Grandpa had been sick and was moved into a nursing home when my sister was 12, and she didn't think she was going to get it, but he had actually bought all the guns beforehand, and so we already had them all, and so uh, my sister still got hers. And while these things aren't perfect examples of inheritance, they're, they're the closest I've gotten in my life to receiving something like an inheritance. But Paul is going to talk about an inheritance today, and he's going to look at the greatest inheritance and what inheritance really is. Because what an inheritance is, it's something owned by someone else which is given to another as a gift or as, as, as to be bequeathed to you, to be given to you, to be a beneficiary of. And the language of inheritance is, is really strong in shaping in the text today. And it's cool because the same anxiousness that my cousins and I had to turn 12 years old, Paul is writing about that anxiousness in the church as they're looking at their inheritance. Um, and so I just want to pray for us, um, and then we're going to get diving in uh, to the text today. So let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, those who are here tonight. And Lord, we do just lift up Kaylin and her family again to you. Um, She's a big relational component um, to the group here, and we know what she does with her presence here. And so we pray that she, she brings um, Christ to her family right now as they're, as they're grieving and, and building. Um, Lord, we just pray for the, the Sampleton clan, that you would uh, work a healing in Kaylin's mom. Um, but more importantly, that, that they will see that their reliance is not in doctors or in medicine, but their ultimate reliance is in the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the text today. Um, Lord, we pray that the beauty of that inheritance is made visible to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so Sean read um, the text that we're going through today before we got going. We're going to come back to that. But what we're going to do first is we're going to go way back and look at some older texts. And so if you have your Bible, um, you could turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. But back, way back in Genesis 12, we see this text, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what we see here, if you've been around church for a while, this is the institution of what's called the Abrahamic covenant. God is coming to Abram, and he's making a covenant with Abraham. He came to this guy who at this point, his name is Abram, and he said, go to this land, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land, um, and I'm gonna, not only going to bless you, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. All of the nations will be blessed through what I'm making with you, Abraham. Um, and God promised to give blessing to Abraham and his family, but God's plan isn't just to give. God's plan was also to get. God, God wasn't just giving things away, um, but God was getting something back. And, and we see um, that five chapters later in Genesis 17, uh, verse 7, where God says this. And what, what is it that God's getting out of this? Verse 7, he's speaking to Abraham. He's revisiting this covenant that he just made to Abraham. And Abraham has moved along in the storyline. And this is what God says. And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see that? God, God says, I'm making a covenant with you to be God to you. God made himself Abraham's God. 
So you just, just think about that. God chose Abram, and he, he, this guy who's wandering, this moon worshiper, wandering around the desert. God, God goes to Abram. He says, Abram, go over here. Um, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. Um, and then he says, Abram is a dumb name. Okay, now your name's going to be Abraham. And also, I'm doing this because I'm your God. Okay, God picked his people. He didn't wait for Abraham's input. He didn't sit Abraham down and, and talk it out. He went to this Abram who was wandering around the desert trying to go to Canaan but settled in the land of Haran. And he says, Abram, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to make you a nation more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And you're going to be blessed by that. And all of this comes from the fact that I am now your God. We see this echoed again in Exodus 6, 7. And so now fast forward um, down to the Exodus story. In Exodus 6, 7, God says this, I will take you, Israel, Israel's the descendants of Abraham, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt under the burden of the Egyptians. See, God chose to make Israel his people. He says, I'm going to take you because I am your God and you are my people. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve, right? Well, when we look back at the story of creation and God creates Adam and Eve and he doesn't sit down with them and say, you know what, Adam and Eve, in, in, in a few years from now, um, you guys are going to screw up and, and there's going to be all these other false gods that you guys are going to invent. Um, and you're going to have this plethora of options, but I'm, really, I'm going to give you the pitch right now of why I should be your God. And so sit back and let's talk this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down the best attributes of me, kind of my best, my best sovereign plan for the things I can, I can get done, and we'll let you choose. No, God created Adam and Eve, and because God created them, he had creator's rights over them. And he says, Adam, Eve, I created you. I'm taking you as mine. You are my people. You are my creation. This is how God's people live. Live this way. That's what God said with Adam and Eve. They didn't have an option. God took them as his people and gave them his rules. And the most ultimate blessing was theirs. Right? In the garden, it was good. In the garden, they were walking with God. To be God's people was the greatest blessing Adam and Eve knew. But it's when they didn't see themselves as God's people and rebelled against that, that problems came. And throughout the history of the Bible, we see this, that God takes his people that God is proactive in everything that goes on, right? Out of Noah's sons, Bible quiz, who are Noah's three sons? Just, just to see. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, there we go. We got some, some homeschoolers and Christian school kids answering that one. Um, so Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and God chose, right? Um, God chose one of Abraham's sons, or one of uh, Noah's sons to be cursed, because he didn't cover his father's nakedness. One of the sons was to receive a blessing, but one of the sons was to receive a greater blessing, and that was Shem. God chose to bless Shem. Out of all of Abraham's children, out of those three, he chose Shem. And then Shem was the great-great-great-grandfather of Terah, and Terah was the great-great-great-grandfather of Abram. And Abram is now wandering around in the wilderness with no idea of what's going on. They're wandering, they're surviving. God chooses Abram. Out of all of Shem's descendants, God chooses Abram. And he says, Abram, and then we see Genesis 12, go to the land I'm going to give to you. Leave your home, leave your family, leave your inheritance, and go to the greater inheritance that I'm going to give you. And then we see Abram had Ishmael and Isaac. 
And Ishmael, um, even though he was the firstborn, God says, that's not, that's not my route. There's another one who's going to come. And so Isaac is now here, and God chooses to bless Isaac. And then there's Jacob and Esau, right? The next people who come. And there's the story of these twins wrestling in the womb, and Esau comes out first. And so in that time, the firstborn gets the birthright. The firstborn gets the inheritance. The firstborn gets the blessing. But God says, I'm going to bless Jacob. And so God blesses Jacob and doesn't bless Esau. Why? Because God chose to bless Jacob. And then out of Jacob's sons, God chose to bless Joseph, but gave an even more special blessing to Judah, who has a very minimal role in the story of uh, Joseph's sons, right? The only, the biggest thing we hear about Judah is how he sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And yet this is the one whom God chose to bring great blessing through. And then out of all the people from Judah, he chooses King David. And David, um, from the line of David, God sent Jesus. And you see, God has always been a God who takes his own people at his bidding. He wasn't willy-nilly, but God was actively seeing his people and pushing his plan sovereignly and joyfully onto those who were receiving blessing from God. So why? Right? Why is God so diligent in this? You look at your Old Testament and you read genealogies and you're like, why are these in here? Um, and I remember one of the pastors at church said when he was reading genealogies, it was like, son of a son of a son of a gun. It's like, just be done. Um, but it's like, why are those in there? Because it's showing God's sovereign interaction with history. God is picking and choosing the way through which blessing was going to come. Why this stream from Adam to Christ? Why did God choose to make Abram's people vast and innumerable and not Sahara Steve? Why, why Abram? Why all of this? Why all of this diligence? Well, in Deuteronomy 4.20, we see this and we're fast forwarding um, past the Exodus. And now they've been brought out. And look at what God says in verses 4.20. Why did he do this? Why did he make his people? Why did he submit them to slavery? Why did he bring them out? But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt for what? To be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. You see, that really hit me the first time I read this. God took, God took, like, like we see this in Ephesians that Sean just read, that we receive an inheritance. But here, God's taking an inheritance, and it's his people. And you see this again um, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, in a poetic portion um, where it says this, but the Lord's portion is his people, right? The portion is the spoils of war. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, well, which is Israel, is his allotted heritage. God's gift to himself is his people. God takes for himself a people as his inheritance. Why does he do this? Well, for those of you who were here last week, we saw that God is the blessed blesser. God is the source of all blessing. He is infinitely worthy. He is in himself a blessing that he simply exists. But out of the overflow of his beauty, he blesses those around him. He does all that he pleases, and God has chosen to delight in his people. What a cool thing. God, out of all of the vastness that God could have done, the God of the universe chose to delight in his people. As broken as Israel was in the New Testament, and we read some of those verses last year or last week in Hosea, right? 
hey, Hosea, um, go and replicate this relationship of Israel. Be, marry a whore and make children of whoredom. In Ezekiel, Jesus, or God just rebukes the church and calls them a whore for what they've done and, and basically describes this, this, this defiling of the marriage bed. Yet in all of this talk in the Old Testament, they were God's inheritance. They were his chosen people. They were his desired inheritance. They were whores at times. They were unfaithful. They were idolaters. They were sinful. They were rebellious. But through all of this, God chose this people to be his desired inheritance. Now at this point, when we're looking at these verses in Deuteronomy 4.20 and 32.9, this inheritance is strictly Israel. At this point, the people that the Israelites are conquering um, are are us Gentile nations, the the non-Jews who are in here. But that's why this passage is so important to us in Ephesians. Because up until this point in the Old Testament, you had to be of Jewish lineage to be inherited by God, to receive the blessing of Abraham. But that's, that brings an added weight to this passage in Ephesians that I'm going to read again right now, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, him um, being Christ, which we see back in verse 9. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So why? Why is, the, why is this 11 through 14? Why do we go through all of this historical background? Why do we start in Genesis 12 um, for this? Um, Paul says we've, we've received an inheritance in Christ. He's talking to the church here, a church of both Jews and Gentiles. And he says that inheritance, though, isn't because God was like, I'm just going to bless you, church. That inheritance wasn't because this church was starting and God decided to bless them. It wasn't because this church was good. It wasn't because of anything on the basis of the church. God made them to receive an inheritance according to the counsel of his will. It was God's will that this church was to receive something. It was, he was very intentional. You see, from Genesis 12 to Ephesians 1, it's God working his plan. If I look at my life, I, I, I try to be intentional with my life, but over a span of what, from Genesis 12 to Ephesians, which is a span of 5,000 years, 6,000 years, it's like my, my plans don't last that long, right? Uh, I, I'm 24 years old, and I've had plans in the last three months that haven't gone through. But God's plan isn't like that. When God, the counsel of God's will is set to do something, it happens. And we just saw what the counsel of God's will was. That's why this background in the Old Testament was important for us. The counsel of God's will in the Old Testament was to create a people for himself. To create a separate people for himself. God was carving out his inheritance because he has creator's rights. God created it, but had authority to also take it. God took his inheritance, and God, in the perfect counsel of his plan, chose to bring us into his inheritance through Christ, who is our inheritance. God made us part of his inheritance, his gift to himself, because we inherited Christ. 
We have been given Christ as our inheritance so that we can be made God's own inheritance. See, the weight of what Paul just said is huge. Because as I just mentioned, in the Old Testament, and these people are still, the the big debate in the church now is it's split because there's Jews over here and there's Gentiles over here. And up until this point, it's Jews who worship in the synagogues. It's Jews who are the chosen people of God. But now there's these Gentiles coming in and claiming Christ and claiming these blessings. And the church doesn't know what to do with it. But here Paul defines it once and for all. He says, hey, you, you, you people of God of the Old Testament, you Jews who were God's gift to himself, these people have been brought in because they inherited Christ. Because through the cross, you have been given entrance through the inheritance of Christ. You see, God's plan was never one narrow people group defined by race. God's plan, the whole counsel of God's will from eternity past to eternity future was to create a people for himself defined by Christ. That's what God wanted. All these things we saw in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12, the Davidic covenant in in 1 Samuel, all of those were leading towards Christ to where everybody from all tongues, tribes, and nations who are covered by Christ were made God's own inheritance. Christ is the blessing that the Jews were waiting for in the Abrahamic covenant. Christ is, uh, the kingdom of Christ is the land that the Jews were so desperately waiting for. And the blood of Christ is the sign that the Gentiles needed, that you and me needed, us non-Jews, us, us people who weren't born into a specific race. The blood of Christ is what we needed to be brought into that. And so what does this mean? Okay, what does this mean for us? Because here we're talking about just theology, right? What does this mean that we have been given Christ as an inheritance? God has given us Christ in the cross, okay? That's the inheritance portion. God has given us Christ in the cross, and Christ now has defined our worth in God's eyes. See, Christ has changed the worthiness of who we are in Christ, We talked about redemption last week, how it's this monetary exchange. Your worth is not your worth anymore. Your worth is the worth of Christ. And last week we saw, and remember, I keep referencing last week, because this opening thing is Paul's prayer. This is happening simultaneously. Paul talked about being, um, God wanted to, before the foundations of the world, predestine us for adoption in Christ Jesus. You see, to be brought into a family, but now Paul is pushing that even more. It's not just being brought into a family, but you're being brought into an inheritance. You are God's desired inheritance through Christ Jesus. God chose to desire you because God desires Christ. And this is a very important thing, especially in today's um, world where it's really just therapeutic theology, right? It's, you know, you had a bad day, God loves you, okay? Just put it on a coffee mug, slap it on your shirt. God loves you. You failed your test, God loves me. You you sinned, you screwed up, God loves me. He does love you, but his love isn't rooted in you. You rebelled. You were the whore. God is a consuming ball of holiness, this fire, and you're gasoline. If you want to be loved by that, you will be destroyed by that love that consuming affection of God. God loves you because of the inheritance he gave you in Christ. Because in Christ, 
He took the, the, the nasty, nasty of your sin. He took the burden of condemnation. He took the sting of death away. And so now God looks at us and sees Christ. And God delights in Christ. God has chosen to reveal the fullness of who he is in Christ. And when the glory of Christ covers the sin of our hearts, we are so attractive, so beautiful, so wonderful to God that it is God's delight to take you as his inheritance because of what Christ has done for you. How much more therapeutic is that? Because of Christ, you are treasured before God. Not because you go to church, not because you're good. Those are all secondary things. You are treasured in front of God Almighty because God has a lust for himself. And when Christ, the Son of God, covers us, he rejoices in the beauty and perfection and love and infinite worth of Christ. And we are beneficiaries of that. Because of Christ, you are precious. Because of Christ, God rejoices over you. Because of Christ, those who believe in him do so to the praise of his glory, which is how Paul closes that verse. You see, God gets. God gives. He is the blessed blesser. He gives away infinite things that we cannot fathom, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love We'll get there in the end of chapter 3 where Paul's like, to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. From vastness to vastness, from height to depth, to things that surpasses knowledge, God is treasuring you in what he's given you. But in salvation through Christ, God receives the ultimate glory. In us being Given the inheritance of Christ on the cross, God is most glorified in the salvation that he orchestrated from the beginning of time. In him, we have our inheritance. In Christ, we are made God's inheritance. In Christ, we are desired by God Almighty. Now, in one sense here, Paul's talking about the immediate, right? These people who Paul's talking about, the first who are to hope in Christ, these people immediately have been given Christ as their inheritance. It happened right there. Christ died. You've inherited salvation. You've inherited justification. You've inherited the, 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 the taking of your sins, being put on Christ, nailed, punished, forgotten, justified. But Paul's also talking about an inheritance yet to come. And the way Paul talks about it, he says the best is yet to come. We see that in verses 13 through 14. In him, that's Christ again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so if, if you have, um, and, and the, verse 13 is the first part of what's up there, just look at verse 13 there. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're, I'm reading the wrong part. <laughs> um, verse 13. In him, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look at the emphasis that Paul is communicating here. Because one, we see that it is not enough to see the gospel. 
Okay? It is not enough to see the gospel. Christian community, godly living, more morality, and all of this reflects the gospel. It does. What we're doing right now in gathering as a body is an image of Christ. And in fact, the church gathered on Sundays or whenever the church meets is actually the fullest image of Christ we have today. Christ in all of his giftings is shown most vividly in the gathered church. But Paul places a specific emphasis on hearing the gospel. Seeing it is good. Seeing it has to happen. But Paul specifically says that in order of their salvation, they heard the gospel. The gospel was spoken by some faithful witness and someone responded to that. Secondarily, the gospel has power to save. The gospel has power to save. It's not God is love. It's not God is acceptance. It's not God is joy. While, while all of those things are true and all of those things are to be treasured by those who are called according to Christ's purpose, the saving power of God is found in the gospel. Your salvation is seen in nothing less than Jesus Christ dying for sinful humanity, bearing their sins, rising again on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That is the power of salvation. Man, what a, what a burden lifted off of our shoulders, right? It's not in your ability to convince them. It's not in your ability to know theological arguments. It's not in your ability to reason with atheists. It's in the power of the gospel that people are saved. Hearing the gospel brings salvation. God saves through the word of the gospel. Three, belief is a response to the gospel. Okay, to hear the gospel and not respond in worship-filled belief is to sin. That's unbelief. Unbelief is at the bottom of all sin. You, you can look at people and you can pick up on the apples of the tree. You could say, well, you're doing this. And you could start plucking apples. But unbelief is at the root of all sin. You kill unbelief, the sin starts to go away. You leave unbelief. Even unbelief at a minor thing. Unbelief that God is sovereign. Unbelief that God is truly loving. Unbelief that God has a plan for your life. Unbelief that Christ truly paid for all of your sin. That is the root of all sin. And this is important to understand, this aspect of belief, of responding in belief. Because in all of Paul's talk about election and predestination, which he emphasizes heavily and is true, there is also a responsibility for those who are in Christ to believe in Christ. And not only to believe in Christ, but to persevere in that belief. To put on that belief daily. You must believe. Your church will not believe for you. Your family will not believe for you. And Jesus will not even believe for you. You must hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and believe in the gospel in order to receive the inheritance of Christ. But the beautiful thing that Paul just described before the foundations of the world, the God who acted in history, is that those who have received the inheritance are those who believe in Christ. God has done great work in us. Now, now this can be hard, right? This, this belief thing. And I'm a Titans fan, okay? So, so I know how hard it is to believe. Uh, I, I want to believe, as much as I want to believe that the Titans, every year, 
And that's why I love the draft so much, because everyone wins at the draft. Because you, you can pick somebody you're excited about, and then you're like, we won the draft. You can pick somebody you're not excited about, and you're like, oh, they knew what they were doing. Right? It's a win-win. There are no wins and losses after the day of the draft. But as we get closer to the season, I look, I look and I'm like, you know, I, they can do it. Yeah, they're going to win every single game. But as I begin to see their games, as I begin to look at their roster and their schedule and their free safety play, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder to believe. And we all know that belief requires a commitment, right? We want to believe the Grizz will do well. We want to believe that our parents will be healthy. We want to believe that the cancer will go away, that our needs will be met. But when we step back and look at what's going on, belief is definitely a difficult task. But really, when you boil it down, it's not belief that's hard. Belief is easy. Perseverance is difficult. To persevere in your belief is a whole other ballgame. And this is why God has given us a great inheritance in Christ. And Christ speaks of this inheritance. You see the word promised in Ephesians 1 verse 14. Christ speaks of this promise in John 14, 16, where it says this. And I, this is Jesus talking, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. A helper is coming. Jesus, Jesus says that a little later in chapter 14, Jesus says that it is to your benefit that I, Jesus Christ, die and go away. Right? So many times we think, man, if, if, if we could just see Jesus doing, raising people from the dead, walking on water, performing miracles, feeding the 5,000, doing all this. If we could just see that, our belief would be confirmed. But Jesus himself said, your, it is better for your belief that I die and go to heaven. It is better for you. When Jesus says better, it's simply better. It is better for you that this happens because after Jesus has left, the helper whom God sends through Christ will come. Jesus speaks more graphically about this helper in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so there we see the word, the Holy Spirit. And when you talk about the Holy Spirit, people either get really excited or they run away um, because we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit sometimes, but Jesus knew what to do with the Holy Spirit. And, and that's why um, I, I love this. And when most people, myself included, as, as I looked at this, um, you kind of get, we, we jump to what we see the apostles doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, when we read 1 verse 8 in the, in the book of Acts, we see power through the Holy Spirit. We're thinking healing of diseases, speaking in tongues, raising the dead, um, things that we saw the apostles doing out of the power of the Holy Spirit later on um, in Acts. Um, which is certainly true, but that's not the encouragement of this text. That's not the biggest encouragement that Jesus, Jesus himself is giving to his apostles because the context of this is that Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead and, and the apostles in the remaining church are all in hiding and God told them to wait and then Jesus appears to them when they're all in hiding and he says, hey, you know what? A time's coming when the, just wait because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the church is like, well, this is great this Holy Spirit, and they say, hey, Jesus, is this the time where you establish your kingdom? Is this the time where we're no longer in hiding? The Romans are gone, the Jewish empire comes back, and everything, it's streets of gold, and we're skipping along chewing bubble gum because Jesus has established his kingdom. 
Is this it? Can we no longer be afraid? Is this the coming of your kingdom? Will our enemies be wiped away? And then Jesus answered, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit is first and foremost a power of belief and a power for witness. That's what those people needed. And that's the greatest thing the Holy Spirit brings. Jesus says, those, that stuff's not going away yet, but you're going to have power to be a witness because of what is coming. Because of the helper who is going to testify to things. Testify to things that Jesus himself spoke of in John 14, 26, where he says this, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. A chapter later in 1526, he he continues and says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see, the Holy Spirit preaches the gospel to the Christian so that we may receive the power of gospel belief. See, the Holy Spirit is the persevering aspect of our belief. The Holy Spirit is the preaching aspect of our belief. This also is our inheritance. And we have seen in the last 10 verses a a purely Trinitarian model of salvation where in in, in the earlier verses, God predestined before the foundations of the world for us for adoption through Christ Jesus so that redemption may come and now that the Holy Spirit may seal us upon our belief in Christ. And I love the immediacy of that, right? If you look back um, at that Ephesians text really quick, he says, um, he says, you who believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, when you believed in Christ, when you heard the gospel at whatever point in your life, or maybe this is the first time, when you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit's working inside of you already, and you respond to that in worship-filled belief, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is beautiful because the Holy Spirit being part of a triune God, this has amazing ramifications for us. Because not only was the gospel meant for you through God, not only was the gospel applied to you through Christ, but the gospel lives in you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the greatest preacher you will ever know. The Holy Spirit has more power to convict and transform than if you yourself stood in front of you and preached to you. The Holy Spirit is the one who declares to us the things of Christ. In times when it's hard to believe and it's difficult to believe, we have one who is inwardly preaching the beauty and the triumph and the sufficiency of the cross of Christ, who declares truth after truth which defeats sin and breaks shackles and stirs worship. And see, the implications for us is that, yes, this world is a hard place to believe in. You see that John talks about, he says, many will come, and they'll come to deceive, and they'll come to rip you away. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The campus is a hard place to believe. Your dorm room is a hard place to believe. Your bedroom is a hard place to believe. But we have one who speaks to our belief in all circumstances who is sometimes the still small voice and sometimes the the amplifier turned up to 11. 
the one who knows Christ deeper than we will ever know Christ, but rejoices in the cross of Christ in ways we can only hope to rejoice in the cross of Christ. And so, uh, I was really convicted of this as I was, as I was kind of over the last year, the Holy Spirit has been a big thing for me. And, and just think, we pray very frequently, dear Jesus, dear God, are, are we dualists? Are we doinitarians? <laughs> How frequently do you pray to the Holy Spirit? See, it sounds weird even. Like, is that, is that allowed? <laughs> I don't know. Can you pray to God? The Holy Spirit's one of the, the people of God. The Holy Spirit is of the same substance of God functioning in his distinct role and relationship. You see, oftentimes this boils down to this individuality that Paul has so frequently badgered us with in merely 14 verses. But we don't think we need that. God and Jesus stay up there. Um, I got this covered down here. But the Holy Spirit is better at communication than you are. The Holy Spirit is better at repentance than you are. The Holy Spirit is better at worship than you are. And the Holy Spirit lives right where you are. He is equally God and He has the power to affirm and seal our hearts in belief. And He will declare to us time and time again the sweet story of the gospel in the darkest hour of our soul, in the isolated recesses of our trials, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. Let the sweet voice of the Holy Spirit declare to you the truth of Christ in the present and the truth of Christ in the future. And Jesus says that in John 14. He says, He will declare to you the things that are to come. And I love this because as much as the Holy Spirit helps us in the now, He excites us for the future. That exhilarating sensation we get glimpses of sometimes in worship and in devotion and in community that makes our, our hair stand up on end. That is the Holy Spirit saying, Hey, there's more. There's more coming. And I love this because 1 Peter communicates this clearly. Peter gets it. Verses 3 through 9. This is a, a longer text, but just this is a sentence, actually. But pay attention to what Peter is saying here. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What has He brought us to? Look at this word again. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So while we have Christ Jesus, there's an inheritance that is yet kept for us, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's the hard part of belief is trials, is life, is things that happen, is busy schedules, is, is tests we don't plan, and relationships that, that break down, and sin that sneaks up. Various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him through the power of the Holy Spirit 
and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And see, I love that because he says, you're being sealed by faith, your belief. You're being sealed by your belief for salvation. And then he says, your faith is as valuable as gold. Though tested by fire, the trials that come, the gold withstands the fire, but ultimately there will come a point where the gold is melted away by the fire. Your faith and your belief are fleeting. Your faith and your belief are dying more every day. And that's because each day you wake up is one less day for you to have belief because you're one day closer to having sight. You're one day closer to seeing firsthand the salvation that God has set aside in heaven for you. The greatness of the glorious riches that results here in looking at that, a joy that is inexpressible, that we cannot fathom, and yet the Holy Spirit leaps with joy inside of us because it has tasted a glimpse of the inheritance that is yet to come. The inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The inheritance that is the blessing of those whom God has inherited. An inheritance on which angels long to look is waiting for us. And I love how Paul closes this. He says, to the praise of his glory. You see, God's inheritance is his own glory. The greatest gift God gives himself is himself because there's nothing more holy, nothing more pure, nothing more admirable than who God is. And yet we are beneficiaries of that glory as revealed in Jesus Christ. And we stand now, um, uh, we live in a valley, okay? Uh, our inheritance is being witness and objects of God's glory. And on one side of the valley is the cross, standing tall and proud, high above time and space, looking down over everything. And on the other side is the glory and inheritance of what is yet to come. And we live down in this valley. But the beautiful thing is that we live between the two peaks of the cross and the kingdom. But in the valleys, we thrive on the hope that trickles down, this, down the slopes. We thrive on what the waterfalls bring to us in the valley. We're in the rich, fertile soil of our belief. We are building crops to celebrate on the peak. We celebrate with anxious anticipation of what we have already inherited and stand in the shadow of, but what if we're also going to get and stand looking up to. And that gives us strength to believe in the hard times. That gives us witness to preach in the hard times. That gives us joy to love in the hard times. Faith and joy are our inheritance to the glory of God and the good of his people. We have our inheritance in Christ. We are called to live in our inheritance in mission because we were called to an inheritance in God. And it is good to be God's inheritance. It is good to be desired by God because to be desired by God means that Christ has worked a God act in your life. To the praise and glory of God, we treasure Christ, believe in Christ, and give glory to God. This is our burden this is our joy. This is our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for what you've given us already. And we thank you that you're giving us more in the future. And I thank you that more isn't unconnected to what's already happened, but more is the fulfillment of what happened.
where just as Christ rose from a physical death, we will rise from a physical death. And we will see with new eyes and we will touch with new hands and we will sing with new voices and we will breathe with new lungs so that we can fully understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth and the vastness of who God is because we see him. And God, may that hope for our future glory change our response in our present struggle. May we rejoice because we have received the inheritance of Christ. But may we rejoice because one day we will be taken again as the inheritance of God because of what Christ has already done in our lives. We thank you that we are in your inheritance. We thank you that you have given us a great inheritance. And we celebrate that. Amen.